Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. For today's adventure, we're heading to Kenya with Shika to explore her world of empowerment, spirituality, and meaningful jewelry. Hi, Shika. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? I'm good, and I'm very excited to be here. Same here. I'm so excited to have you join me on the show today. We're on opposite sides of the planet-ish, and it's just wonderful to be able to connect like this. Absolutely. So before we kind of get, well, you know what's coming, the weird and wonderful questions. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait. So fun. Before (laughs) that, however, I would love if you could just tell us where you are, describe what it's like there so we can get situated in your world. Okay, so I am in Nairobi in Kenya. This is uh, where I was born and brought up, so it's home to me. Currently sitting in my apartment block, but I'm very blessed because my office looks out onto the most amazing sort of treescape. I'm on the fifth floor and I just have trees all around me, which isn't common for a lot of apartment blocks. I'm very blessed in that respect. So that's what I'm doing. I'm gazing out at the the trees while I speak to you. The sun is streaming through. We're very fortunate to have great weather here, most most of the year round, being on the equator. That just gives you a bit of a background. So great. If you're ready, we will dive into my weird and wonderful questions that I have chosen for you. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. I I love these conversations, but for some reason, these just tickle me. So here we go. So why do you think we chose to call the number 11 instead of 21? Ah, great question. And I guess I think that the wonderful human mind just likes to complicate things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's all I have to say about that one. Oh, we'll just leave it at that. That's perfect. What is the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Oh, uh, that's a good one. I was just thinking of some sort of animal uh, a meat that I've eaten, but actually this is even weirder. I went through a stage of trying out veganism a couple of years back. And I think the weirdest thing I have ever had was some, I don't even know what it was, Jen. It was some kind of meat substitute replacement. And I have never eaten a dirty sponge before, but I bit into this thing and I was like, oh my God, this tastes like it's a dirty sponge. It was just weird and gross I have no idea what it was so yeah that's probably the weirdest thing I've ever had and I can't even tell you what it was amazing I as a vegetarian this resonates with me when I first (laughs) basically became vegetarian the options were pretty limited and I don't know if I've ever eaten like something that tasted like a dirty sponge however I have definitely bitten into some like veggie patties that felt like squeaky would yeah. be the word. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, that. you know, not really what you're looking for from your food. Like, squeaky, yeah. like f- firm yet. Should it, should it be firm? You know, like just questions that you ask yourself as you're eating something. You're like, oh, I don't know what this is. But anyway, I feel very lucky 
to have been on this vegetarian journey and to be now living in a world that has amazing substitutes from like pea protein and all this stuff. So a hundred percent love that answer and resonates with me very well. And I'm sure will resonate with every vegan or vegetarian (laughs) or even, you know, people who eat meat who have tried substitutes. We've all been there in some way, shape or form. (laughs) Giving presents or receiving presents? Giving, definitely giving. And I think, again, it's something about the, yeah, the feeling of giving is, for me, it's, I think it's even more heartwarming. And yeah, definitely giving. Would you say, I'm just, this is my own reflections on things Mm. in the past couple of years, being on this journey, I think we're going to definitely get delving into this later in the conversation. Would you say that you are someone who easily receives gifts or kindness, like compliments, love, or is that something that you have struggled with in the past? Because I'm speaking from my own perspective here and this journey that I've been on in the last couple of years of like learning to love myself for the first time, I would say I have a much better relationship with receiving now than I have before? That is a great question. And I resonate what you just said, because, and it's something that I'm fortunate enough to have gained that awareness that I've not been good at receiving. I I think that again, a lot of it goes down to, you know, past conditioning or just like habits that we've accumulated. I think that the giving definitely has something to to do with that 100%. I think I'm going to add another little dimension to this. When I was just sort of picturing like the sort of feeling that I get of, of giving, you know, running my own jewelry business and, you know, pretty much being a solopreneur. So I do everything from like, you know, make the pieces to package the orders. I get so much joy from, and this is like packaging orders for clients that I I don't even know. I mean, most of my clients, I I don't know. I've never met in my life, but I get so much joy packaging these pieces and putting them into the box and putting the gift wrap and, you know, every single element, every little element brings me joy. So I think maybe something that actually gives me more, I shouldn't say gives me more pleasure than receiving. I do like to receive, but I do find it difficult as well to receive. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting dynamic to reflect on. Mm, personally at least it it has been for me and I Mm. very much like you like gravitate towards giving presents Mm -hmm. I think that there's something so oh I don't know satisfying about really gifting something to someone that you know they're gonna love or Mm -hmm. but also you know releasing expectations of them loving it but but knowing that you put so much thought into oh wow I really think that would be great for you yeah um and not gift not gifting just because of an occasion, but gifting mm-hmm. just for the sake of giving joy, spreading joy, spreading love. Yeah. So I think this is actually like, I put it in the weird and wonderful questions, but I feel like this is something easily could be riffed on for a very long time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Moving on though. Using a really high or a really low pitched voice, your choice. Could mm-hmm. you please tell me how you like your coffee? I love it black. Was that your low pitch voice, Chica? I try to make it low pitch and it didn't come out low pitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> we might have to do a retake, but I'm not sure we're, if it's going to come out any better. We're going to give you another chance. Okay, fine. Deep breath. Mm-hmm. I love it black. <laughs> is that any better? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know what? It is what it is. And we are just going to embrace it. It. We know now that you like your coffee black. 
Perfect. <laughs> I got myself a picture voice. You're hilarious. Okay. What music would you choose to play every time you walk into a room? Oh, good question. I definitely gravitate to very sort of like chilled, you know, Zen background music. So it wouldn't be a particular song, regardless of what the situation is. If it's an anxiety-prone situation or a bit of tension, then that sort of soft music just kind of helps to put you in in a a chill sort of frame of mind. And if it's a happy sort of situation, again, it sets a tone. I mean, yeah, a happy situation, maybe you want something a bit more upbeat. But if you're only giving me one choice, then that's what I would choose. (laughs) I think that's very wise. Yeah. If you had a chance to name a country, what would you name it? Oh, this is a good one. <laughs> I don't know why this is coming to my brain or and I've heard this term some, somewhere and I probably can't even pronounce it. Gargantua. I, I visualize it like a big country, like again, a big sort of massive sort of land space, very green, very lush, you know, rainforesty. So yeah. Gargantua. Mm. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. Amazing. It's very mysterious. Perfect. I feel like it's kind of like Wakanda, you know, yeah. for those who have seen yeah. the Marvel movies. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a vibe that we like. Mm. So there you yeah. go. Amazing. Go. As always, they bring me so much joy. To- <laughs> <laughs> I love the randomness. <laughs> so here we are. I like to start these conversations with a bit of an origin story. So you already mentioned that Kenya, which is where you are right now, is where you were born and raised and it's home to you. I'd love to just explore a little bit more about what it was like growing up in Kenya. Let's get to know you a little bit better. You know, what were you passionate about growing up? Just a little bit more about you. Sure. I I would say I had a pretty normal childhood. I mean, I think, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people think of Kenya, third world, maybe a bit sort of like more challenging, but I was very fortunate to have, I would say I had a great childhood, you know, loving parents, indulged in lots of, I would say very simple everyday pleasures. It's it's the kind of things that we do that we now look back on and we say, oh, you know, the good old days, for example, going out on camping trips and being out in nature. And we're so blessed in this country with with nature. We've got beautiful beaches and we've wide sort of savannas and we can go on safaris and just such diverse landscapes. And we would do a lot of that as kids when it came to our holiday time. And in a very simple way, like I said, literally pitching down tents, sleeping in sleeping bags. I know people still do that these days, but it's it's not nowhere near as as common. Roughing it out. That was a big part of my childhood. I was uh, fortunate enough to be sent you know, to great schools. I schooled here until I was 18. The school I went to it followed the British curriculum. So it sort of set us up to be sent overseas for university. Uh, education, uh, you know, here in Kenya is great up until university stage. And even now, the universities are, you know, pretty decent, but people tend to opt to go overseas if they can afford to send their kids. So yeah, that, that's what happened with me. I went to the UK. What happened, this is like going back a good sort of like 25-ish years ago, we, following the British system, you would get 
pigeonholed at quite an early stage. Like by the time you're like mm-hmm. sort of 15, 16, you have to make a decision. And and it's literally like, do you want to go into sciences or do you want to go into humanities? And humanities is basically everything that non-science based. So I guess even like arts would would follow into that. And you know, you then had to choose what subjects and streams and then even again what you're going to do at university based on that. And I found that quite constricting at, at a young age because I, I had no idea what, what I wanted to do. I, I never had like mm-hmm. a clear vision of this is what I want to be when I grow up. And I went down the humanities route and again, still didn't know what I would I was going to do with that. And my father very wisely advised me, he said, you know what, go and do a law degree. And then after you've done a law degree, literally you can go and do whatever the hell you want. If you want to go and clean toilets, you can clean toilets. Like just, <laughs> just get a good, get a good foundation, get a good grounding. I thought, oh, okay, well, fine. I'll, I'll go and do a law degree. So I went to the UK. I was at the University of Warwick. I did my bachelor's in law. Never loved it, but obviously had to start looking at a direction that I wanted to go in. And I remember besides like the prerequisites, we did have the ability to choose certain subjects. And I was really drawn to environmental law. Mm-hmm. So when I finished my undergrad, I still wasn't ready to go out into the big bio world. And I decided to do my master's and I specialized in environmental law. And I did a couple of internships in that field. And it was, I just told myself, I said, if I do get into the law, this is what I want to want to do. But still, Jen, I was applying for like jobs and internships and stuff like that. And A, I, know I didn't get anything. And B, I just remember I was never excited to go out into like the corporate world. Because mm-hmm. even though it's environmental, it's still very much, of, especially a lot of the job associates, it was very much geared towards a corporate nature. You would have to go and work at a law firm for a few years before you'd probably be able to go and like specialize in the field that you wanted to. I remember so clearly having a discussion with a friend of mine. And it's just like, you know what, I, I know that this is a dumb thing, that this is the normal route that people take, but it's this is just not floating my boat doing this whole sort of, you know, corporate thing. She's like, oh, well, you know, if, if you know, 90% of the population, you know, do like nine to five, you know, surely there, there can't be that much wrong with it. And I just remember listening to that and it just, it just didn't resonate. My heart just sank and I thought, oh my God, that's, that. don't tell me that this is what my life is. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I like I said, I didn't give myself very long, you know, in the in the UK after I finished my master's, I, I came back to Kenya. There's a very long story about how this happened. But I think the sun, moon and stars aligned. And synchronistically, I managed to get position working on a wildlife and conservation project out here in Kenya. And it was initially, it was just meant to be an experience for a few months, but a few months turned into almost four and a half years being back out here in nature, working with communities on a wildlife and conservation project, taking all all the boxes Mm -hmm. for me. In a nutshell, a lot of it involved educating like, you know, the communities on conservation. And it's quite sort of challenging because for the local communities, they're, they're living hand to mouth day to day. So they're cutting trees down to, you know, make charcoal, then, you know, sell that to get an income. There's a lot of poaching going on and it's mainly for like the bushmeat trade. So, you know, they would kill animals to go and sell them at the local butcher in order to just get some money to be able to feed their kids. I'm not even talking about high level 
elephant and rhino coaching. I'm just talking about sort of small scale stuff. And obviously the big stuff did happen, but I'm just talking just, you know, at a community level that like harvest honey and they would have dogs with them, you know, that they would take them into the bush. And a lot of animals got killed, genetic cats and bush babies, because, uh-huh. you know, as they'd go and harvest the honey, you know, the dogs would come and they're chasing or whatever, you know, animals were in the trees and stuff. So there'd be a lot of orphan animals. That was a big problem. When you tell them about conservation, they'd be like, hang on a second, you know, we have elephants that are coming in and they're destroying our maize fields or they'll kill our children on the way to school because there's like no, especially the area that I worked in, there's no fences between like the communities and the wildlife areas. So, you know, they say, well, when an elephant comes to and kills my child and you're telling me, well, look after, you know, the wildlife, that's a big sort of conflict in itself. You can understand their dilemma. And, you know, what we're trying to teach them is that, well, you know, if we do put conservation sort of, you know, policies into place and we can set aside this land, you know, for tourism to come in by earning a revenue by conserving this land and, you know, through tourism coming in, you'll be better off in the long run. But like I said, they live hand to mouth. So they're just, they're just mm-hmm. thinking of today. So it was a very, very interesting interesting dynamic you know there's a lot of bureaucracy and you know corruption that's involved mm-hmm. and a lot of this takes time and energy and money you know and everybody else who's worked in conservation who's listening to this knows that it's conservation is an expensive process in itself and it takes right. time to, to implement is very very interesting I think one of the most rewarding things personally for me was being able to play mom to a lot of orphan animals that that was very very thrilling and in hindsight I mean I've always loved animals I've always had dogs and stuff, but if I knew that I had the passion that I did, I would definitely have done something like veterinary science when I was growing up. But yeah, I'm just so fortunate to have had that experience sort of raising a lot of orphans. So that was probably one of my biggest highlights of of being out there. And I guess this kind of ties into how I got into jewelry because towards my later years of being there, that was like sort of like 2008, that's when like the big global financial crash happened. So in addition to running the project, we had like a sort of small tourism establishment where people come to stay. And again, that was a a way to earn money or generate income to go back into the project. But about 95% of our bookings were were cancelled. A lot of our clientele were from from the US and, and Europe. We were sort of thinking, well, you know, how are we going to raise money, like even just to look after the orphans? So I was thinking, I was like, well, now I've got sort of time on my hands and I've always been very sort of creative. Why don't I create a product that I can sell that can then generate income to help us with with the orphans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's where jewelry came into the picture. And again, it wasn't something that I've always had a, a passion for. It was mainly like when I'd go to the local markets and I'd see the local vendors having these beautiful beads, you know, from all over. Africa, I thought, huh, hang on a second, you know, maybe this could be like, I just looked at it as a little fun project. But that's what I did. I just literally bought a bunch of beads and bought, I didn't even have like, you know, internet and YouTube back then. So it was just buying a couple of books and teaching myself how to make necklaces and earrings. Mm-hmm. And sh- yeah, and sure enough, they they sold and we managed to raise money from them. And I really enjoyed doing it. So that's how the jewelry aspect came into being. Wow, wow, wow. So much information. (laughs) Okay, there's a couple of things that I would love to pick up on. I've got one that's like right in the front of my head, but I want to save it because I think that's going to lead on into the next conversation that I would like to have with you. I want to go all the way back when you were talking about going through the British school system because it resonates with me because I also went through the British school system in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I also remember that time when you're about 15, 16, and they're basically like, 
you need to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life. (laughs) And similar to you, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really felt quite lost. And we had this day at school where we had to dress up like the university degree that we were going to (laughs) do. And I actually wore my mom's grad gown from Oxford and I basically taped a big question mark on my back because oh brilliant I and I have this picture of it and I came across it the other day and I was like yeah I remember being in the thick of that uncertainty and I think that that system works really well for people who do know what they want to do. Like it really empowers them to like get on it and you can basically get into the thing that you're really passionate about pretty much straight away. Yeah. However, for those of us who are the squiggly lines in the corner and we don't like, you know, we're kind of just like smushing around trying to figure out, okay, do I like that? Do I not like learning more about what you don't like? And then that also helps you find what you do like. So I think that's a really cool thing for people to hear. Maybe some of our listeners are, I I love this thought that I have no idea who the listeners are. And so I love the idea that there's, maybe there's a teenager listening (laughs) or even an, I put adult in inverted commas because I think we're all basically five-year-old pretending we know what we're doing. (laughs) Uh, But if you are in the midst of a, and we're going to talk about this later when we talk about, you know, shifting into different things and basically reinventing yourself. If you find yourself in the midst of uncertainty, be in it. It's okay. It's actually like a really cool place to be because we have two choices. We can either see it as being stagnant and stuck, or we can see it as an opportunity that is full of possibility. I think it's great when somebody really knows what they want to do. They follow that path and it and it does its thing. I think there's something really cool about being the squiggly line. And I think if you can embrace that, it can be really amazing what then unfolds if you just let it. I agree so much. And Jen, I'm still the squiggly line. I'm still still shifting. I'm still evolving. I mean, maybe we'll go into this in a bit more detail, but especially in the last few years. And now I'm being so unapologetic about it. And I think it's beautiful that, and you know, why, why should we box ourselves into this is what you are and this is what you go to school for and you have to be this one thing. And sure, you know what, there will be when you are in school, you will have to make a decision. And then, you know, when you're at university or your first job or, or what it is. But I think the beauty is not feeling that just because you've made a choice or a decision to follow one path, that that has to be the path. Just allowing ourselves the permission to explore and enjoy and just look at it as a journey. Yeah. And I think that that's when you're in it at the time, you do feel you're like, oh, I'm making this decision and it's so Mm. big and I have to do this thing. I chose to accept an offer to go to the University of Exeter to study history coming out of high school the week before (laughs) had basically my first existential crisis of like, (laughs) who am I? What am I doing? Where am I meant to be? What is my purpose? And very fortunately, I have very, I have very supportive parents who basically said, why don't you just take a year off, take a year off, work, save up some money, travel if you can, or you want to start learning more about yourself. And the permission that gave me 
at a time when I couldn't give myself permission, right? Like as we get older, Mm. we have to learn to reparent ourselves as we are growing and changing. But at that time when you are really, I mean, we're always in a state of flux, but but when you're a teenager, like it, you could not pay me to go back to be a teenager. Same here. Yeah. Like, you know, big hugs to all the teenagers out there. Stick stick with it, whatever it is, being kind to yourself, not forcing yourself to, to be anything other than what you are. That's the greatest advice I guess I could give. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, just allow yourself to be squiggly lines with us wherever you are. <laughs> I took jobs, you were t- joking earlier, but like your dad saying, you know, go do law. And then you, if you want to, you can clean toilets. I did that. I got jobs yeah. where I was cleaning toilets and yeah. I was a receptionist at a company and I did admin and I also did save up money and I went traveling. So I think it's really cool when we give ourselves permission to just be and not have it all figured out so that we can then make more conscious decisions about what's coming out next. I was very fortunate in having a wonderful teacher that I went back and visited. And I sort of said to her, I was like, I'm I'm lacking direction. (laughs) And she said, well, what were the things that you really enjoyed at school? Not just subjects, things that you studied within subjects. What were the things that you really enjoyed talking about or made you feel alive? And had some of these conversations that I'd only really ever had with my mom. Those sort of bigger questions. It really came out that I love geography, which you were talking about that, you know, it's either science or humanities. And what I loved Mm -hmm. about geography, and I always joke about this, is like I call it the greedy discipline because you can study whatever you want and it's geography. And that was a subject that made sense to my squiggly line self of like, I don't know where I'm going. There was part of me that always wanted to be a volcanologist (laughs) or I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid, right? But then my brain at the time, the narratives that I would tell myself, like when I struggled with the subject was, Mm -hmm. I can't can't do that because my brain doesn't work that way, X, Y, Z, right? And so we find different ways to live a way that we can hopefully feel the same way that we would have felt in those roles, like the exploration, adventure, unknown, all of those things, but bring them and follow pathways that allow us to do what we wanted to do when we were five, but in a totally different form. So that's what, when you were talking about that, that's where my mind started going like, ding, 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 ding. I was like, yes, this is something that's so important for all of us to hear, regardless of what age we are, that we can always shift and change. I agree. And I just wanted to say, I know that we gave a shout out to any sort of teenagers that are listening, but I think equally, it's great for any, you know, parents who are listening, who might have teenagers who are going through the same thing or dilemma. And, you know, what a gift that, you know, your parents gave you to Mm -hmm. say, take that year out, because I'm sure that your life probably went in a whole different trajectory because of it. And even if it didn't, the life experience that you got during that one year, you know, doing those random jobs, you you can't put a price on that. A hundred percent. And I think that what's really cool about looking at your story thus far that you ran us through, Mm. it's, it's cool to me that you picked a direction, which can externally look like a very definitive direction to go. But once again, you found the flexibility within it 
to follow a path that was meaningful to you. And we have to know that every experience we have along the way builds foundations that might surprise you later, right? It's transferable skills that you didn't realize we're going to serve you in a certain way until you find yourself in a situation later in life. And you're like, wow, it's actually really helpful to have this legal jargon figured out. <laughs> like I can imagine within the conservation context, knowing the legalities of things, like that's something that if you hadn't have gone down the law route, maybe well, you wouldn't have had that depth of perspective to bring to the table. So I think it's just a case of knowing that regardless of what choice you make, there really are no wrong choices because we can always course correct and we can always find value in everything we've ever done. Yeah, 100%. And just I'll just quickly insert something in just to validate mm-hmm. what you said. Because yes, I mean, yes, having that legal background did help. But not only that, again, in hindsight, so I, I, you know, told you about like, you know, the whole sort of financial crash and conservation being an expensive process and also because of like, you know, the politics and the bureaucracy and stuff. And even though I absolutely loved doing what I was doing, it got to a stage and I was getting into my late 20s. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have any expenses, but I, I had like, you know, earned like sort of no money, no savings, you know, nothing. And ultimately it was my legal education and foundation that I fell back on. And then I went back to the UK so that I could complete that education so that I could mm-hmm. then go out and get a job. And, you know, by that stage, I had enough experience. And like I said, it wasn't just, you know, while of conservation, it was being in tourism, it was looking after guests, you know, you're learning human resources. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many, like I said, transferable skills that you gained during that, that period of time. So I ultimately did end up going back into legal, not for very long, but I did work in corporate for a few more years. And then circling back to the jewelry, because it was a creative passion that had you know just fired up in me. And I saw the impact that I could have by having this creative passion, being able to sell jewelry in order to channel into conservation to make a meaningful impact. And you know, ultimately, that's where I met you, Jen, because mm-hmm. when we did that trekking expedition to, to Venezuela, if I remember correctly, they picked 10 participants who were able to raise the most amount of funds for that project. And Mm -hmm. the way I raised funds was, again, I just did exactly the same thing. I still had my beads with me, which I'd taken to the UK. I remember setting up a stall down at at Camden and, you know, selling jewelry for a couple of weekends, uh, you know, and also to to sort of friends and family. And that's, you know, that's where that took me. So it's funny, different things that you sort of pick up, you know, skills, and uh, creative aspects that can then go and make an impact down the line. I was just thinking that. So is this the time frame when we Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Right. And I mean, that's, that's so cool to me that that was the point of your life journey where I then entered stage left. And, you know, <laughs> we, we had our own experience together out in South America and you were my, my hiking buddy, which let me just paint a picture for everybody. I am six foot one, and Chica is like, are you five two? Five foot one. (laughs) (laughs) So there's like, you know, a good foot height difference. And we were basically by each other's side up this entire mountain. I would say in many ways, I had a much easier time of it than you did because we had to climb over these giant boulders. (laughs) They were basically taller than you. (laughs) We were boulder buddies. It wasn't hiking buddies. It was boulder buddies. That just paints a picture for all of you out there who are are listening. It's still such a powerful memory in my mind. 
that we did that together. And I think we learned a lot about friendship on that trip mm-hmm. and being able to be there for one another in times of of struggle. Because what on the surface looks like physically challenging things, projects or trips or whatever, it is a head game. Being able to hold space for one another when we were both either struggling or one of us felt great, the other one felt like crap, <laughs> you know, and riding that roller coaster of yeah. undergoing this challenge together. It's amazing how that translates into then being friends going forward. It's the same thing, regardless of whether you're climbing a mountain together or you're just yeah. living daily life together. I think the most important thing that a friend can do for someone is just hold space for them to be exactly who they are and exactly where they're at. And 100%. That is something that I had learned before that, but it's as as we're sitting here and I'm thinking about it, I'm like, wow, Shika never asked me to be anything except for who I was and what I was feeling at that moment. And you still do that for me. So thank you. This is my moment of gratitude towards you because- Right um, back at you. We have lived very separate lives in terms of where we've gone and what we've done. However, we're always right there, regardless of like, and there I say there in the ethers of the internet (laughs) (laughs) or like on the phone, but it's just really cool to me. And then to then have the experience of you inviting me to come to your wedding in Nairobi and being able to experience where you grew up and meet your family and just be like thrown into the thick of this Indian wedding, which I had absolutely no idea what to expect. And it was just, as I think back on it now, such an immersive experience for me. And I went in totally blind. (laughs) But it was also just such an honor to be able to be there with you over the course of that time, which is a rite of passage is what it felt like. For some reason, that wedding, I think because it's such a process over like five days of like, you know, release and celebration and it's wild. So thank you for providing me once again with a really formative, beautiful experience to be there with you. We're very honored to have you. So we're very, very grateful for your presence there. I mean, we're going to hopefully talk about this later. We've both ended up being caregivers for our grandmothers. Mm -hmm. And I have a very strong memory of your grandmother putting a flower necklace around my neck at your wedding. That to me is so beautiful when I think about you caring for her to just know that I had that moment with her and these people that are part of our history and our heritage and our foundations in life. Yeah. Anyway, I'd love to talk a little bit about caregiving later because I think it's a big part of both of our lives right now. Sure. Which, like, hilariously, how did we know we were going to be living that parallel life? I know. <laughs> that I way, know. shape, or form. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you, because I have this memory mm-hmm. of, of a Maasai market in Nairobi that you took us yes. to. In preparing for this interview, I did read some interviews with you that were written. You talked about there being a vendor, a female vendor in Nairobi that you asked to teach you to yes. make necklaces. Yes. And So would I have met her? So I'd probably say yes, because she would have always have been at those markets. I think she she still does go there. Um, Yeah, very, very possibly. Well, and I love that you included that as part of our experience of being Mm. in your hometown. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you took us to wildlife orphanages as well so that we could yes. experience, basically experience you and your life in five days. <laughs> it was, I was like, <laughs> now I'm realizing it wasn't just an immersive experience being in Kenya. It was like an immersive experience of being in Shika. <laughs> a day in the life of Shika. <laughs> exactly. So I would love to hear a little bit more about how those relationships have helped shape you as a creator of jewelry. I'll talk about just, you know, the lady that you've mentioned, because she's somebody I, I still sort of meet her whenever I go to the markets. And I always, always remind her, I'm like, you know what, you're the one who took me to the markets, showed me exactly what materials I needed. Till today, I still have so much gratitude for her. And she had nothing to gain from helping me. Well, I say that, I mean, I bought beads and stuff from her. But I think the impression that made on me was just seeing the talent in the local market and also just getting to understand what their challenges are on a daily basis. And, you know, again, their their livelihoods comes from directly sort of selling mainly to tourists, yes, to, to some locals as well, but it's mainly to like, you know, the tourism market. As I was sort of setting up my business, I was then trying to see, okay, fine, well, how can I help these women to scale up their own businesses? It was a no brainer for me. And this is now when I started my jewelry as a business in uh, 2015, just mm -hmm. They're talking about is like she's one of the first women that I initially sourced beads from when I went to the market. This is now back in 2008. And she showed me what materials I needed. So, like I said, literally just told me how to make a basic necklace, what tools I needed, et cetera, et cetera. And I had maintained that relationship with her even when I then came back to Kenya to live here. I then thought, well, I might as well outsource, you know, a lot of my production to her and fellow crafters as well. By doing that, they're earning like an additional income and just, you know, exchanging ideas about designs and using sort of higher quality materials with better sort of finishes so instead of mm -hmm. like, you know, brass ear wires, you know, using good quality gold plated findings so that then they can fetch, you know, a higher price in the market because not only does it aesthetically look more pleasing, it gives people less allergies, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, it was a give and take, you know, we're exploring designs, how to support each other. And then that translated not only to like the beading and jewelry aspect, but I thought, well, how can I now bring this into other aspects of my business? So, you know, for mm -hmm. example, the packaging, you get these beautiful, we call them banana boxes. So they're made of banana leaf fiber. And again, you have these local artisans who, who make them. So there's a couple of women that I support in that respect. And again, you know, trying to mentor them and say, well, we lined it with this fabric, it'd be more durable. It's going to like look more attractive. You can fetch a higher price for it. So, you know, just also teaching them a bit of business skills, just supporting each other and paying it forward. And I think establishing those relationships has really gone such a far way in helping both of us out. It's interesting because it echoes one of the weird and wonderful questions that we had about giving and receiving. Yeah. And every interaction that we have, whether it's with a stranger or someone like this that we're slowly building relationship with or someone within family, there is this give and take. I love the idea that she would have just walked you through the basics with mm -hmm. probably no ulterior motive than to just yeah, be with you and, and see that you were passionate about it. And I think that that is just the beauty of humanity mm -hmm. and something that we can all seek to emulate. You know, we don't have to be focused on an outcome yeah. of our giving. We can just give because it brings us joy. 
And so one of the words that we chose for this episode is empowerment. When I look at your life, you know, (laughs) the whole thing, (laughs) this word really does sit clearly to me as like a foundation of what you do. Because earlier in your life, this empowerment came in terms of taking care of animals, looking at ways to make communities stronger, empower them to find ways to diversify the economy and the way that they support themselves. And then it it shifted into the empowerment of these artisans and jewelry makers to work in collaboration. One of the things that we're going to get onto is learning to empower yourself. And I think that that is something that I don't know about you, but uh, certainly came to me later in life. Not that it's late in life, like we're still spring chickens, really. But in the grand scheme of things, we can spend so much time empowering others and supporting others, which is beautiful and foundational for both of us. But I think one of the toughest things we sometimes come up against is learning to empower ourselves and give ourselves the same love that we give others. I can resonate with that. Yeah, 100%. And that's definitely been my experience of this coming, like I said, very recently in life. I do want to know a little bit more about your jewelry companies, plural. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about, they're two separate companies, but I'm going to say the two sides of the approach that you have towards this entire endeavor. I did actually have two companies. Are you referring to like the wildlife aspect and then the more of like the statement beaded one of a kind, which is inspired by different cultures? You have Shika Zuri Mm -hmm. and then you have Simply Zuri. That's correct. I've recently merged them back into Shikazuri just to make my life easier. Yeah, initially what I had done, and, and I continue to do it, one of my biggest design inspirations is obviously you know, wildlife that obviously stemmed from the time that I spent working on wildlife conservation. And also like I just going back to seeing how selling jewelry had the ability for me to generate funds to then channel back into wildlife conservation. So that's one big angle that I was very inspired by when I set up Shikazuri. Gazuri as a business. So one angle was heavily concerned on like creating designs that were inspired by wildlife. And then we could channel a portion of the funds to different conservation projects that we'd and causes that we'd sort of select over different periods of time. The other angle is I've always been very inspired about tribal and ethnic adornment from different cultures, not only Africa. I mean, Africa is is a big inspiration for me, but having lived in the Middle East, I lived in, in Dubai for about three years and would travel around the region quite a lot. And just, again, pick up all these beautiful pendants and beads when you'd go to like the local souks and markets. So I'd acquire a lot of those. But what I wanted to create with Shikazuri was not just African jewelry or Middle Eastern jewelry or Indian jewelry, what inspired me was to combine these different components and elements and beads from different cultures into one piece to create a fusion. And I would call it like a a melting pot of cultures in a Mm. single piece of jewelry. And I thought that that the reason I wanted to do it is because I was like, well, we live in a very cosmopolitan society. We are multicultural beings. And even if Mm -hmm. you're born and brought up in Canada or the UK, 
where a lot of us are global citizens. You know, I mean, even if you don't travel much, you know, a lot of people love enjoying food from different cuisines and stuff. Just mm. and and we yep. have friends from different cultures. So, but you, it doesn't mean that you have to live in a different place or you have to travel. Just our normal daily interactions are mm. very sort of multicultural, multifaceted. Put put it that way. And I wanted to reflect that within a piece of jewelry. So I was like, well, I don't want to again just stick to just you know one genre. If I am inspired by these different cultures, why not combine them? And my tagline is jewelry with a story. So not only would it just be a piece of jewelry, I would like write a whole story about what each component was and where it comes from, and you know what the symbolism of that piece or those beads are to the cultures from which they originated. So that's what makes buying a piece of shikuzuri so distinctive is that it comes with a history and style and soul and culture all fused into a piece of adornment. Oh, I love that so much. We have a very similar mindset in terms of always wanting to make sure there's a charitable element to the work that yes. we're doing. And so yes. like with this podcast, there's a cause for every episode that the guest gets to choose. We talked about the empowering of artisans and working with local communities and sustainable sourcing and all of those good things. But you also do donate part of your profits. That is correct. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like I said, when I was doing the wildlife jewelry, I would select like a different cause or an organization and it would either be for a specific duration of time or if I was doing an exhibition and I often collaborate with different artists. So for example, for the past few years, I've been collaborating with a good friend of mine who's also a, a very artistic creator. She does scarves and she's she's based in the UK, but she's also from Kenya. And we often have, you know, one big exhibition every year and we pick a particular cause to support. So we've um, supported like, you know, the Ambassadi Trust for Elephants. They needed like a water bowser to be able to transport water across. We've supported a, an organization called the Ankent Taylor Foundation. She needed a sewing machine. She's based out in the Maasai Mara. But rather than a wildlife angle, we took the social angle. So she was trying to empower the local Maasai women to ditch cotton sanitary pads mm. uh, because, you know, they don't have access to pads and stuff yeah, you know, there that. in the wild. And also, again, if you're using sort of plastic pads, it causes a lot of environmental pollution, but they can't afford to get them. So she was teaching them to you know, stitch their own reusable pads. So, mm. you know, it, it sounds like so mundane, raising money to help to buy sewing machines but that sewing machine has like such a massive impact on these women's mm -hmm. lives because they can now state sanitary wear for themselves i also used to donate to a program called the mara predator conservation program and they would work in the mara ecosystem with local communities looking into like declining populations of cats and predators out there as well so mm -hmm. there have been various different rather than just sticking to one there have been like different organizations that we've selected. And, you know, towards the end of this call, I'll tell you a little bit about the cause that I've chosen for your listeners to support if they so wish. I love that so much. And it's part of why I wanted to let the guests choose a different cause each month. Mm -hmm. And really fun for me to donate to things that I may never have come across on yeah. my own. The whole point of this podcast is to have these deep and meaningful conversations with 
people across the planet who are, you know, doing cool things, but also to expose myself and then hopefully expose other people who are listening to just the diversity of amazing initiatives that there are, that people are spending time and energy and effort to create in order to protect and make positive change where they live. It's so cool to realize that we're doing that in parallel as well. So you say mundane in terms of the sewing machines. I mean, I have a very different perspective now about what it means to instigate meaningful change and have a meaningful life. I used to think so much bigger about things. Like, oh, we have to have big change. I had this term that I called being a glocal, which was like a global loco, someone who, you know, you act locally and then that ripples out into having global effects. And what this last little bit has really taught me in being a caregiver and basically I'm not able to go anywhere. I am in one place and I'm very blessed to live in a a beautiful place where I am constantly inspired by where I live. And then these conversations, when I thought I was missing travel, a lot of what I was missing was the conversations I would have with people when I was traveling, when you're outside of your, your daily context. And so on one hand, these conversations serve such a beautiful purpose for me to get out of my daily lived experience and immerse myself in whoever's world we're exploring. But then I've also learned to really be rooted where I am and realizing that living a meaningful life is really just about curating and allowing your daily lived experience to flow. And just finding joy right where you are. And also not just joy, whatever emotions are coming up, navigating whatever they are, not saying, oh, it'll be better when X, Y, Z, or life would be so much better if I lived here or there, or I had that. Just living in the present and being grateful for what you do have, focusing on what is thriving. And when things aren't, sitting with it, sitting in the discomfort. Yeah. And I think that's something we've talked about this a lot, just in terms of our shared experience of not just caregiving, but our personal journeys, our spiritual journeys, or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And it's interesting to me when I read the one article, you talked about going and doing law, and then you went and worked at this lodge and in the animal orphanage and then coming into jewelry. It's really interesting to me. I don't know when this article was written. But knowing you now, and you and I are, as is everybody, we're all constantly evolving, but we've had some pretty deep and meaningfuls about our conceptualization of life and meaning and purpose and finding our own life path, life mission, spiritual connection, all of that kind of stuff, which I think we're going to delve into next, hopefully. But you actually said that I started this journey into jewelry making by accident. And I'm just curious, knowing you as I do now in this current iteration of who you are, would you still say that it was accidental? No. In in hindsight, now I, I would say that it was meant to come into, into my life. Then I, I know exactly why. Like I said, I've always been very creative and artistic, but jewelry making was never on my on my radar. You've you've nailed it because looking back, I would probably reverse that statement and say that it, it was meant to happen. It was meant to be my path. And I love that. 
<laughs> because it was yeah. funny when I read it, I was like, ha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because what's so beautiful about having these, and that's kind of what I want these conversations to be too, is like, you know, when we're 90, you and I can sit oh. and listen to this conversation we had at this time in this current version of ourselves, right? Which then when you have these interviews or whatever they are that you've had with people in the past, you can look back and be like, wow, okay, that was true for me then. Yeah. Is that true for me now? It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier in terms of thinking I need to have a path and I'm going to do this one thing. And if I do that, then that's going to lead to that. And that's going to lead to that. It's just letting it go yeah. and saying, I don't know how I'm going to shift and change but I'm open to it. 100%. I would love to delve a little bit more into something that I know is near and dear to both of our hearts, which is our spirituality. And Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about astrology because I'm just going to read this quote that you had in your interview as well, which I think really resonated for me. My entrepreneurial venture has been the accumulation of my professional and personal life experiences. I've very much aligned with this in terms of recreation, which is Mm -hmm. the entity (laughs) that this this podcast sits within. It's a container, right? For it to become whatever it's going to become. And that's the cool part. I'm approaching it very differently to how I would have approached business even two, three years ago, allowing it to evolve and unfold in a way that I'm not necessarily directing it. I'm just following a natural flow. And this has been very challenging. And I've used this Mm -hmm. as a experiment, even just within the way that I, and for those who have been listening to these episodes, even since the beginning, if you go back to what my brother calls my first pancake with Laura, which was my first episode, I was so nervous. And it's not that I don't get nervous, excited about these conversations now, but then I felt like I had to really direct the conversation I had to have certain points that I was going to cover. And I was like, okay, well, but if I don't get these points covered, is that going to be a meaningful conversation? And you can hear it in my voice and the way that I'm communicating. And it's not that that conversation is any less meaningful than this one because it was more scripted in terms of I had the question sitting in front of me and I'm like panicking. But I think what's happening is in the process of doing these interviews, I'm letting go more and more every time. And I can notice myself more actively listening versus Mm -hmm. preparing for the next question. It's more like following impulse, right? Knowing that when you're saying something and I'm listening to you, if I don't pick up on every single thing that you said and then bring that out into something bigger, it doesn't matter. Whatever's meant to come out comes out. I think it's the same when we're thinking about our daily lives or the way that we communicate with one another, like how conversation flows. Like I think learning to actively listen, shut up. (laughs) I mean, I say that now as I'm on this rant, but really being able to, when someone is talking to you, don't be having a narrative in your head about what you're going to say next. Yeah. And I think it's the same with life. Can you be present with all that is happening right now without needing to direct what's happening next? And that to me is a big part of spiritual living and mindful living. Can I just be where I'm at, be fully 
aware and alive and present in what's going on, knowing that what's going to come next is going to come next. And it's, it's going to be what it's supposed to be. I, I'm resonating with everything that you're saying. Which I am not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I would love to hear as a reflection, we talked about this briefly when I asked you to come on the show about imposter syndrome and the narratives that we create in our minds that are basically limiting beliefs, right? Like, who am I to come on the show? Yeah. I had the same thing. Who am I to create a podcast? Anyone listening? I mean, it's basically who am I to blank, whatever yeah. it might be for you, Fill right? Gap. Fill in the gap. And so when we were talking about that, and I, that's why I love the word empowerment that we chose, because when you made a distinct shift, like I've been following your business, mm -hmm. you made a really big shift in your whole world where you basically found a passion for astrology. From my perspective, it was like watching you take a leap of faith to come out yeah. <laughs> as, as an astrologer and say, this is me. This is the, ne the next iteration of me. And I'm going to find ways to weave this into what I'm doing, that the jewelry can be a vehicle for me to, or a container for me to bring this new passion into the world, birthing creations, weaving beauty into the world in a different way. You inspired me to be more me Aww. and to be proud and loud about who I am. For me, it's been a very interesting process of becoming more spiritually aware. And I mean, it's all ego, right? To, to put any label on yourself at all, to say like, I am spiritual. <laughs> but it is helpful to have ways of saying that to other people so that we can find new ways to connect. Because the conversations I have with people now that I recognize myself as a spiritual being having human experience are very different from the conversations yeah. that I had previously where I did not have a spiritual connection at all. And I thought it was just all chaos. And <laughs> so I yeah. love to hear from your perspective, when you started this journey or it came to you, how did that all unfold and how did it feel? First of all, I'm really, I just wanted to talk about what you said that I inspired you and I'm very touched that I inspired you. Me coming out on social media and talking about this avenue, it, that was a big act of bravery on my side because, and I think, again, like I said, we were all guilty of this whole imposter syndrome. Who am I? And, you know, I don't have the right or blah, 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 blah. Like I said, fill, fill in the gap. I did that more for, for me just to get out of my own head. I did it for me because I think it was my higher self sort of coming out saying, you know, you can do this. I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit just to sort of weave in how this whole evolution has, has come about from, mm -hmm. you know, jewelry, moving into spirituality and discovering astrology. You know, the last sort of couple of years, particularly since the, the, the pandemic, I think it's affected everybody in, in very, very different ways. I think for me, I'm actually very grateful for the time that I did get to sort of just step back and evaluate, you know, when it was a bit of a quieter period in, in my life and think, okay, and reflect, am I really living my purpose? And I love doing shikazuri, I love creating jewelry, but I was feeling a bit of a void and I was like, there's something missing here. 
And literally, Jen, it's been a journey, like it's been a two-year journey, but particularly that sort of one, one and a half years, I think it's like sort of like the 2021-ish sort of period where I was going through my own spiritual awakening and soul searching. And I had a few guides and mentors who helped me along the journey. I did a course that was called Becoming Your Own Alchemist. And in a very simple sense, I mean, one big component of it was getting my Reiki practitioner certification, which which is something that a lot of people do all around the world it usually only takes a few days to do but this is actually a full one-year course it's about sort of stepping into your own power this is where the whole empowerment thing comes in about you know learning how we're vibrational beings everything is energy Uh, we've all heard about the law of attraction and the secret Mm -hmm. but I was now really understanding that I'm manifesting exactly what I'm putting out and we've had this conversation before about how everything in our life is it's just a mirror Mm -hmm. but like I said you hear all these things but when you start to do the work and the work goes into learning about behavior patterns and why do we have imposter syndrome and looking into like childhood patterns and deeply conditioned ways of being mm-hmm. you know learning about triggers and it was it was a whole process of, of mm-hmm. me just you know learning about myself and that in itself was very very empowering and as I was learning more about myself I just kept in having this this question about what is my purpose what is my purpose and it was coming and like there was this act of desperation like as I was learning more about myself the void was becoming deeper because I just felt like and I needed to excavate all this stuff out to find my true path. And I remember my mentor saying something very meaningful to me one day because I was like, oh, you know, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a better place. I'm being a lot more intentional about how I think of things. And hence I'm attracting very different situations and people into my life in, in a very positive way. But I still had this purpose void. And she's like, you know what? Stop putting so much pressure on yourself. Your your purpose could just be to make somebody smile. That had like such a profound impact. And it's something that I never forgot her saying. And it took a lot of pressure off of me. And that's where the whole sort of surrender came in. And I was like, okay, maybe I am here to do Shikazuri. And maybe it might change in a year. Mm-hmm. And it has. Like even over the course of this year, I've actually, on the one hand, I've been thinking, okay, I'm going to transition out of doing Shikazuri and, and it's going to be full-time astrology. Mm-hmm. And then as I was channeling more of my energy into that, I absolutely love astrology. But I also love the creative aspect of Shikazuri. Mm-hmm. So this is where I was like, you know what? We don't have to pigeonhole ourselves into it's got to be one way or one path. And this is where I think we're coming full circle into how we started off. And this is where it's all about surrender and just feeling into it, you know, day by day and minute by minute and being present. And that's exactly, you know, what you were just talking about before we dived into this portion of our talk over here. So that's kind of been things in a snapshot but I mm-hmm. think that there's so many key lessons that you know we we learned and a lot of it just comes back from like presence and surrender and not attaching ourselves to certain expectations and mm-hmm. outcomes and I think there's nothing wrong in having hopes and dreams and aspirations that that's all great but to hinge everything on it's got to turn out this way that's a way of living that I was very attached to. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I've still not mastered the art of full surrender, but I see so much beauty and ease in my day-to-day being mm-hmm. by just letting go. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting to me, <laughs> the, <laughs> this stuff just makes me laugh because it's when we think about, okay, I need a purpose. 
I think that this has its foundations in our own conceptualization of our worth. Yeah. Am I worth X, Y, Z if I'm not busy? Am I worth and worthy, right? Worthy of whatever it is that you seek to be or have or experience, right? One of the things that I've really realized is that self-worth foundation and, and the surrender is I have worth and I am worthy, even if I'm just sitting here breathing. Yeah. It's funny, but it's also just like, yeah, <laughs> of course, that you and I have had the same timeline on this awakening journey, both similarly out of our own versions of desperation. And it's really interesting to me when you go down this route and you start to, I love that you use the word excavate, because I think Mm. that so much of what we think is us is just things that we've built up around us, right? And they're usually there to protect us or based on things that we've heard have happened to other people or maybe have happened to us in lived experience or whatever it is. And it's about just pulling it down brick by brick, stripping it away, and realizing that as we ground ourselves and we find, to me, it feels like coming home. It's like coming home to yourself. Yeah. And one friend literally was like, yeah, you just needed to burn it all to the ground. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. That, that can feel very traumatic. And like that letting go you're talking about, the surrendering, mm. releasing attachment and expectation is really, really scary at first. Releasing, blaming others for things that have happened, like the forgiveness path, which, oh, don't yes. even get started. And learning what forgiveness means to you. I remember starting to read different types of either spiritual or non-spiritual conceptualizations of what forgiveness means. And I was like, can someone just give me a how-to on like on give me a manual, please? <laughs> and then what you come to realize is it's just it it actually comes by taking 100 percent responsibility for your lived yeah. experience. And that to the ego feels like death. Yeah. It's like, wait a second. I'm entirely responsible for everything that's ever happened to mm-hmm. me, whether I label mm-hmm. it good or bad. And like, did my ego go kicking and screaming and <laughs> and still does when I catch myself in the sort of what I like to call the blame, shame, or defame mindset, yeah. externalizing how I'm feeling rather than inviting myself to get really quiet and be like, is it actually this situation or set of conditions that I find upsetting? Or is there something, as you were talking about that conditioning, lived experience, societal norm of understanding of certain things, X, Y, Z? Yeah. Or is it something that's deeper and that I can actually not push that part of myself away, but actually give it the stage for a second to say, I'm feeling a certain sort of way about this. And I have not been heard. You've been shoving me in a corner, locking me in a room for a while. Yeah. And then inviting that part of you to come forward and and have a conversation with it and realize Mm. that it's once people start to go down this route, there's lots of conversations about your inner child. I talked about it earlier in terms of learning to reparent yourself. It's really just recognizing that you have all the cards to completely curate what you believe to be true. Yeah. And you and I have laughed about this before in terms of (laughs) 
even if this is all bullshit, it's a much nicer way to live your life. 150%. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't, we were talking about the imposter syndrome. It's the same here. It's like saying, okay, I can choose to believe X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't really matter what other people believe, whether they believe it's true or not. I can sit within myself at home and who I am. I can be my own anchor. I don't have to look to others to validate me or to affirm what is true for me. It's interesting because I was reflecting on this yesterday about how I used to be really hyper-independent. I don't need Mm. anybody. I can do everything by myself. (laughs) And then you you get into relationships and situations where you then can sometimes skew the opposite direction into codependency. Yeah. And then when those break down, it's like your total sense of self is flipped on its head. And they call this like the dark night of the soul or, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's basically where your perception of reality comes crashing down. Yeah. And it's when we learn to be interdependent. When we become at home in ourselves, we can be in relationship with others in such a deeper way where we're not reliant, but we also are reliant. It's hard to explain and I don't really have the words for it, but it's just this beautiful coexistence of the give and take like we were talking about, right? Like exactly. Giving Ooh. and receiving. I think the big part of it is giving people permission to do the same. 100%. And like I said, I love how this has all come so full circle from, from the beginning. It's all about like that balance of, of giving and receiving. And you know, before, if you had asked me this, like sort of a few years ago, I would, I would have no problem. I'd be proud of saying, yeah, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy being a giver. I don't need. And, and, and again, being hyper independent. And it's only now that I've realized that, no, we've, it's so important to be able mm-hmm. to strike that balance and doing it with, again, with grace and ease, you know, just having that humility as well. It, it ties everything up so, so nicely. I know that this has really helped in terms of navigating my current set of conditions as a caregiver because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's literally in the title, giver, that yeah. you are giving care to someone who is yeah. at a stage where they cannot care for themselves in mm-hmm. the way that they need in order to thrive or in some cases, yeah. for some caregivers to, to survive. I think that that's something really interesting that would be like such a beautiful way for us to to finish up this conversation because I want to be aware of time. Mm-hmm. But for you, how has this, we haven't even talked about astrology. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> like I said, this is going to go whatever direction it needs to go. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. I thought we could do a whole other episode on astrology, but I would love to know for you, what does the experience of being a caregiver mean to you? in this new awakened mindset or context that you find yourself living in? This is going to sound terrible, but again, I think a few years ago, it would have been, this is a harsh word, but I would have looked at it as an inconvenience Mm. and, you know, like, you know, why me? And maybe again, a bit of resentment because Mm -hmm. it does, when you're there, you have to be fully present for the other person, you know, when you are giving. And back in the day when, I, like you said, I would give high value or I'd be prideful in being busy, but in being busy in my work, in my entrepreneurship, in achieving. 
words now. I am very fortunate that this experience has now come into my life at a stage where I have shifted so much within and my perspectives and my attitude towards different things. I think for me, it's a massive perspective shift. Uh, Like I said, I think a big thing coming back to the whole being present, I find that that's so important. Being there 100% for the other person, I often put myself in my grandmother's shoes and, you know, think, you know, what, what would I be going through? And you never know, Jen, you know, we might be in the same situation, we Mm -hmm. might have been going to get to that age, I'm not doing it because I think, oh, well, you know, that good karma is going to come come (laughs) to me. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there's so much that we can learn. Like I said, it's ta- a big lesson is presence, is compassion, is mm-hmm. grace. I think my grandmother hasn't quite yet got to that stage of surrender. She, there's still a lot of resistance within her because she is, she's also very fiercely independent. And I think maybe that's where I get a lot of that street from as well. You know, my <laughs> mother has it as well. But just, you know, observing and being there, like holding that space for her and being there with a lot of compassion and grace. And it's taught me to cultivate these qualities a lot more. And I think also just actually observing her is also bringing a lot of peace within myself. Just in a nutshell, I think that's what that's what I'm getting out of it. You said this is going to sound horrible. You know, there's a discomfort, I think, within the early stages of becoming a caregiver or whether it's something that you've chosen to do, or maybe it's just a set of circumstances that unfolded. I mean, it is basically, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I think this applies to also to parents of children that require extra care and not even just a child that requires care of all kinds. There's mm-hmm. different forms of caregiving. I would like to echo your statement that I had a lot of discomfort about how I felt about becoming a caregiver. And I wrestled with this infinite giving capacity that I believed that I had versus then the feelings that would crop up around like mm. inconvenience or resentment or it's taking away from this or that or whatever it is, right? And when I had this awakening, I I was in quite a, a deep depression and I made big decisions, then big personal shifts happened. Mm-hmm. And I basically came crashing down. People talk about hitting bottom. Yeah. Where you literally don't have a choice but to surrender to where you're mm-hmm. at and what's happening. And there's something so beautiful in that. I had this massive perception shift where I was like, this is a gift. This time with her is a gift. This time with myself is a gift. I would never have given myself without this situation. Yeah. The reality of when you get into spiritual ways of, of looking at things is perception is everything. We get to choose moment to moment how our external world is being interpreted in our internal world. It's the same as labeling something a good experience or a bad experience. You get to decide. It's the same as you get to decide what you believe. I am just so grateful to be exactly where I am and how everything has unfolded because I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. And I think for those who 
<laughs> Maybe this all sounds a bunch of woo-woo and gobbledygook and this is just sitting like so uncomfortable within you right now. That's okay. That's okay. Take what works and leave the rest. If there's certain things that you're like, hmm, I'm a little curious about that. I encourage people to just, just look at it first intellectually. Read some things that might be a bit different to what you've read before. And then what you said earlier about the practice, doing the work. We can understand things intellectually, but it's not until we're like, maybe I'll just experiment with this. Let me try it for a day. Yeah. Let me try it for two days. Maybe mm -hmm. even you just make it 20 minutes into your day thinking yeah. a different way. This has been a really powerful part of both of our stories. And when it comes to something like astrology, I think it's a it's kind of like Marmite. People love it or they hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of in between, although I stand to be corrected always. For people who are maybe a bit meh about astrology, I think what I would encourage people to realize is that astrology is really just inviting you to get to know yourself deeper. I agree. For anybody who does want to hear me just sort of like sum it up in, in a couple of sentences mm -hmm. or my experience about it, I say that it's the biggest takeaway and against form of empowerment for, for me is that it's helped me to understand myself so much better. And so there's that component, but it's also allowed me to have so much more compassion for other people and understand, you know, why are we all so, so different? Why do we react or communicate or in different ways or attract different people or, you know, circumstances? So mm -hmm. that aspect has been huge for me, even if I only use it or if anybody only wants to explore it in, in their own sort of personal capacity. You know, we all think that we know ourselves, but like I said, I am still, I've been studying my chart for the last two years and I'm still learning more and more. And it's very A, empowering and B, very liberating as well. So I just think that it's, it's a great tool to have in your toolbox to help to know yourself better. Yeah, absolutely. And if you start to delve into different people who are practicing astrology and guiding others to do the same, what you come to realize is that they're just inviting reflection, an invitation to connect deeper to the environment we find ourselves yeah. in, to just release this idea that we're just these separate individual beings bouncing up against each other and bouncing up against our environment, that actually we are a working, breathing part of this giant existence that is just here to experience itself. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's okay. We can sit over here and be woo-woo. I love it. <laughs> well, you know what? And like I said, woo-woo or not, A, again, it's so liberating. And mm -hmm. and another thing, again, uh, I'm sure you've come across this, this quote about, you know, life is happening for me, not to me. To me. Yep. I think when you have that perspective on everything, again, it's just so empowering. And I'd far rather live life with that attitude, woo or not, because again, it just brings me so much more peace. And if it works for me and it's woo to somebody else, no problem. You do you, I'll, I'll do me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is sometimes, especially because we're newer to this way of thinking, it can feel like you are 
part of a small minority that Mm. thinks this way or believes this way. But actually, when you start to, I call it like crawling out from under my rock, (laughs) living under and engaging in different communities. And that's why the beauty of the internet and being able to connect with people across the globe is that there's huge communities of people who are Mm. living in this way, not just in order to live a better life personally, but there's always this tipping point where now I just want to give. I just want to give this. I want to be able to do this for other people. I said that earlier, the feeling of coming home to myself. Wow. How can I help other people feel that same belonging within themselves and know that Mm. when you find that, you then belong everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. And I love the saying, life is happening for me rather than to me. One of my favorites is everything is always working out for me. We're so quick to label experiences or situations as good or bad or Mm -hmm. whatever, (laughs) you know, pick from the spectrum. But when we can say regardless of the conditions, so living unconditionally, everything is always working out for me. Yeah. Love that. So, oh my goodness, this is the... (laughs) I just love this so much, which I knew I would. I was very excited about this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. But what I would love for you to do now is tell us a little bit about the cause that you chose for this month. So I've chosen a cause called Seabolt. And basically that the charcoal industry is, it's huge in Kenya. I'm ensure it's the same in many other African countries. So a lot of trees are cut down for the charcoal industry. And there's a lot of waste, charcoal dust that remains from this industry. What's done is that the, the charcoal dust is collected and it's used to coat indigenous tree seeds. It protects the seeds from predators or extreme weather conditions. It avoids the use of having like tree saplings in plastic bags. It it avoids the pollution element. And what they create is a seed ball. And basically, you can just like throw these seed balls anywhere. And when the conditions are right, when there's been rainfall and the right germination conditions are there, these seeds will hopefully grow into saplings and then trees. So it's a great inexpensive and efficient way to encourage uh, reforestation. Trees are something that's, you know, very, very close to my heart. You know, I we started off this conversation saying, you know, I'm very fortunate to be born and brought up here in Kenya and in nature, but deforestation is, is not a Kenyan problem. It's, it's a global problem. Mm-hmm. But I just love this innovative way that seed balls have come up with, you know, helping the deforestation problem. So if anybody's interested, I'm sure you're going to put the links out there. You can just go directly to their website and donate. There's like different indigenous trees and grasses that can be selected. But if you don't know what you want, you can just choose. They've partnered with like six donors. You can select a donor and they will choose the right seed balls that can be thrown or distributed in, in the areas where they're needed. Obviously, choose whichever donor you know resonates with you. I've worked with Kampur Travel Diaries. They're, they're friends of mine. I know that they're doing great work up in northern Kenya, empowering communities. There's great information on the website. So anybody can go and explore further about that there. Yeah, so cool. What a great choice. I absolutely love that. I'll look forward to donating. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. Thank you for choosing it. As I said, part of the joy of this is, is finding out about so many diverse projects that are happening across the globe that as we operate in our normal spheres of life, we don't necessarily come across. So I am really looking forward to donating to that. Oh, brilliant. 
And as you know, there is one question that I did provide ahead of time because <laughs> we end every conversation this way. So I'm very excited to ask you this question. <laughs> what do you think is the meaning and purpose of life, the universe, and everything? Well, Jen, given the conversation that we've had today, I don't think this is going to come as much of a surprise because I think it just summarizes what we've talked about. But in a very simplistic terms, I think it's just to become the best versions of ourselves so that we can live the most fulfilling and empowered life that we can. And, you know, just to keep on generating good karma so we don't have to come back in the next life and experience the same hardships and, and tough lessons. And I think, again, there's many ways that we can do this. I think getting to know yourself is so empowering and there's many modalities. For me, it's it's been astrology. For you, I know that you're very passionate about meditation. It can be breath work. It can be mindful living. You know, whatever it is, there's no one right way for mm -hmm. everybody. So I think just, just explore, you know, the modality Go and live the best life that you can live through the conversation that we have. Hopefully we can inspire others to follow a, a similar suit. You know, spirituality isn't for, for everyone. So find the modality that works for you personally. Living life on earth, it doesn't have to be tough and full of hardships. And, you know, you don't have to have money to live a fulfilling life. So yeah, that's, that's my little spiel. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that we're all just here to explore, experience and expand. Yep. Thank you so much, Shika. You are so welcome. I have really, really enjoyed this, Jen. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This month's recreation donation is in support of Seedballs Kenya. As you now know from exploring with Shika and I in this episode, this organization is dedicated to restoring Kenya's natural environment by regenerating forests and grasslands that ensure the survival of the country's biodiversity. In just one of their 25-kilogram bags, there are over 11,000 seed balls, which then become trees when dispersed and introduced to the right conditions. In collaboration with six different conservation partners across the country, they ensure that the tree species are dispersed properly, where they will thrive. Over 35 million seed balls have been distributed since 2016, and now it's our turn to be a part of it. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, we hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways that you can support their unique version of recreation for the world. Please take time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you, and if you do take action to support this month's cause, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. If you or someone you know has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, keep healthy, and keep exploring.